0: If you're newer to fellowship, we have a class called Discover. And it just tells you who we are and how to be connected beyond just attending a weekend service. So if you've never moved beyond just coming to church on a weekend, which we're thrilled you're here. But if you're interested in learning more, this is a great class. It'll be on the 7th and the 14th of April, two weekends. And you can find information in your program to register. We'd love to tell you more about fellowship and see if it's a place that you might want to be more connected with and involved and a part of the family here. If we were to try and survey the world religions, it would be perhaps an impossible task to catalog all the denominations, all the religions, all the ologies, all the cults, all the categories of worshipers around the world. I have in my library a book called The Handbook of Denominations. It was done in the 70s, and that's just mainline recognized churches. I have no idea what the count is. I really don't care, but I have the book there so I get to talk about it. Uh, But the book lists all these different isms and ologies and how they split over the years, and they continue to split. When you came to church today, you probably passed at least 1.2 million churches on your way here. With so many religions and denominations and different branches and different groups and factions and splits, and uh, what is this all about? What's the notion of religion? What are we looking for with this concept of religion? Forget those who don't believe in religion for a moment, but is there some sense in your life and mine we're looking for something more? We're looking for a purpose at some point in your life when you're old enough to realize as a child you're, you have dreams and aspirations and you get married perhaps and finish school and have children and those children go off and have children of their own and you continue the process and maybe you build a company, a, a, a career for yourself, a fortune, you become famous, whatever it is, trajectories we go through and as we cobble along, once in a while you stop and say, what am I doing? And it's that consciousness somewhere that there's some greater purpose, some bigger meaning, something beyond just the horizontal, which is fine stuff. We've got this moral conscience that rattles around in our head sometimes that we're guilty or ashamed or fearful of something, and we don't know why. We're hurt. and We've endured an injustice. Someone has violated us. You've been abused as a child. Something horrific happened to you. And you look up in the quiet time and say, Is there a God? Does he care? Would he help? Religion is this amoeba of thought that goes around in humanity. Whether we worship God in a jungle setting, thinking that he's in the trees and in the sky and in the water and in the animals, or we worship a God on print, or we worship a God that we've created. There's something in the heart of man that tries to make life work. For a moment, let's imagine you could have whatever you wanted. You could take a blank sheet of paper and say, I'd be perfectly fulfilled and completely happy if, and then just write. I'd be perfectly fulfilled and completely happy if. Fame, fortune, money, money, sex, power, always the top three on every list travel the world, have a home in France, a home in London, a home in Cancun, the Bahamas, Colorado, Vancouver. Have a staff waiting for you every place you go. Have lots of children who like each other. (laughs) And bring you grandchildren who love you more than anything. I'd be completely happy, I'd be completely fulfilled if, and then just write it down, dream about it. As we grow up and we get older, we find that having and wanting are very different things. Nothing wrong with wanting things. Nothing wrong at all with dreams and aspirations and plans. Not a thing wrong with it. But sometimes in the having, the wanting changes perspective. That's why new cars come out. New computers come out. New technology comes out. Because we're a bigger, better, more consumer culture. And we like stuff. I'm not anti-stuff but the having is very different than the wanting. A friend of mine who's a counselor has an axiom that he says something is wrong with everything. Best meal, best house, best vacation, best marriage, best children. There's always some little thing that annoys us. We don't think about the 90% 90% perhaps it's wonderful. It's the 10% that drives us mad sometimes because something's something wrong with everything. This is going to be a real downer Easter. <laughs> but I think it illustrates the broken part of man that's trying to make life work. And we work and work and work and we get there and there's another mountain yet to climb, another goal yet to achieve, another problem, another person in the way. And we're broken people limping around best we can in a broken world that's falling and not getting any better. Or to say it very simply, I think we're often asking the wrong questions at the wrong places. We're looking for the answers to questions in the wrong place. Places and in the wrong ways. Look at our culture right now that wants everything to be what they want it to be, and you can't infringe on my rights because I'm entitled to, and it's all about me. And we have turned into a culture that is so narcissistic about me, my, I, what I want, and you can't stop me from having it. It's become a little God. The culture is looking for answers to good questions in the wrong places and in the wrong way. And no matter what we do as a culture, as a humanity, as a country, we will never find fulfillment in these self-created ideas or gods that we create after our own image. If I have this, then I will be that. And part of growing up is beginning to realize that. The resurrection is the critical event in biblical Christianity. The resurrection, or what we call Easter Sunday, is not just important. Without it, Christianity is a fraud. Without the resurrection, this book is a lie. It's not even worth literature analysis. The resurrection is what the entire work of Jesus Christ hinges upon. And that's what we want to think about today it is different than any world religion Bruce Shelley says Christianity is the only religion to have as its critical event the humiliation of its God Christianity is the only quote religion where we took God and killed him to make a way every other system is do's and don'ts do this and don't do that and maybe you got a shot When you do the things you're not supposed to do, do a bunch of things you're supposed to do, and in the end you might have a balancing axiom going on, you might have done just a little bit, I'm not as bad as other people type of theology. And you never know how to measure that one. In Christianity, the humiliation and suffering and death of his son is where all of our hope pins upon, will he be resurrected? The words and works of Christ are very clear in the Bible. The words and works of Christ are very clear in the book called Scripture. The problem is we don't really carefully look at it. We let Wiki tell us what to believe. We let many series tell us what to believe. It's one book. It's a big book. It's a hard book, but it's not hard compared to the alternative. It's not hard when you understand God designed it for anybody who could learn to read or hear a story. In fact, it's for everyone, and that's the beauty of it. If you have a Bible, I want you to open to Luke chapter 24. We have been going through a study of the gospel of Luke for about 13 and a half years. (laughs) We may finish it before the Lord returns, but you have to preach something We actually designed this with Easter being in mind in the Gospel of Luke. So we would land here on this day in Luke 24, beginning at verse 1. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered it, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John all use the exact same phrase on the first day of the week, on the first day of Sabaton. Shabbat, Sabbath, happens on Friday night. But now, because of this event, we have Sunday as the first day of the week where Christians around the world gather to have church, to gather together as an assembly. And it's been that way ever since this day. You'll notice it's early dawn, that small window of time between where darkness is going to be moved away by the sunrise. And therefore, many churches have sunrise services on the first day of the week commemorating Easter. And this is the pattern and habit of some. I wonder if you did it today, you'd ever have seen the sun or not. But nevertheless, that's the idea behind it. Luke writes that they found the stone rolled away, but they did not find the body of Jesus. The hearer, the reader, would catch that. They went looking for one thing. They didn't find what they were looking for, but they found something else. And that creates the interest in the story and pulls the reader in. They went looking for A, and they found B. Verse 4, they were perplexed about this. While they were perplexed, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. Now, whenever angels appear in Scripture, a number of things happen. One is they tend to be luminary or bright or shining. The word can mean lightning, and it's a very bright, intense appearance of an angel. So the artist renderings often have this light around an angelic being. When they appear, uh, we know from other parts of Scripture, um, we have two of them here giving a testimony a witness if you will because it required two voices for evidence and we'll see in Acts chapter 1 verse 10 two angels in like fashion when the ascension occurs and the disciples are all gawking up into the heavens and the angels say what are you looking up there for sir we have two angels at his tomb and two angels at his ascension I don't think that's coincidence on the part of Luke our author These two angels are sent from God, they're messengers to give answers to good questions. Every time we have an angel appear, people are terrified. In fact, you can find a couple of exceptions, but generally they're afraid, evidenced not only by the text saying they're afraid, but by the angel often saying, Do not be afraid. You don't tell someone who's unafraid, Don't be afraid. When Joshua hears over and over again, be strong and take courage, be strong and take courage, that's not because he's strong and courageous, because he feels weak and he's discouraged, he's afraid. Be strong, have good courage. You tell someone who's brave to have courage? No, you tell someone who's fearful and weak and curious and wondering and afraid. So the angels make us terrified, and they bow their faces to the ground. We have neat insight from John as well in John 20, where the angels are Positioned where the tomb was and you have on one end where the head would be one angel and on the other end where the feet would have been an angel like bookends, angelic bookends waiting as the women come in suddenly appearing and startling them and these two angelic messengers are going to give them some information verse 5 the men said to them why do you seek the living one among the dead? he is not here but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again. Why do you seek the living one among the dead? A marvelous question at many levels. Now, Jesus had told them many times what was going to happen, but they didn't hear it. We don't want to be hard on the disciples or unkind. I believe had we lived at that time, we'd be just as thick as the disciples. We'd be just as stubborn as the Jews. We would not have heard or responded any differently. But the disciples don't get it. Look at your Bible. If you have a copy in front of you, three things. He says the Son of Man must occur. Number one, delivered into the hands of sinful men. Number two, be crucified. Number three, be raised on the third day. Delivered, crucified, and raised. The angels are telling them, why are you coming here looking for the living among the dead? Don't you remember what he said, that he must do these things? He must be delivered, he must die, and he must be raised again. Now, there are many times in all the Gospels that talk about this before it happens. Just turn a few pages back to your left to Luke chapter 18. I want to show you just one. Jesus was very clear about this on numerous occasions but they did it here they couldn't comprehend Luke 18 verse 31 then he took the 12 aside and said to them behold we are going up to Jerusalem and many things which are written through the prophets and the son of man will be accomplished make a middle note of things that are written that will be accomplished verse 32 he will be handed over to the Gentiles and he will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon note the detail And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Don't you remember what he told you? He told you he wouldn't be here. He told you he would be resurrected. Why are you here? The resurrection clarifies what Christ had been saying. Now, they were told this again and again and again. And there are some reasons why they didn't comprehend it or embrace it. And I don't think, again, we would have either. By the time Acts occurs and the Holy Spirit comes in Acts 2.24, Peter says God raised him up, putting an end to the agony of death, since it is impossible for him to be held in its power. And how many Christian songs and lyrics could we think of, of that death can't hold him down? He can't be confined by death. Death can't keep him in the ground because he is the only one who can overpower death. Back to Luke 24, verse 8, they remembered his words. So the angels have clarified, don't you remember? He said these things must happen. Oh, now they remember them. Verse 9, they returned from the tomb, and they reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, And they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, and he saw the linen wrappings only. And he went away to his home marveling at what had happened. The 11 disciples dismissed this, the apostles dismissed this as nonsense. The word used outside in medical terminology of a person with a high fever who is delirious. You're delirious. This is nonsense what you're saying. They didn't believe him. Now, one little detail we need to point out in a politically correct culture. The Jews did not think highly of women from the beginning of Judaism to today. Orthodox Jews, more conservative Jews, women really don't have much of a role other than being a mom and a wife and taking care of the men, like many Middle Eastern cultures. In Jesus' day, women's voices were not used as testimonies Women couldn't, we would say, go on the stand and give a testimony and a trial in our vernacular. It didn't matter what a woman thought. It required two men at least to corroborate a fact or an eyewitness account, we would say. You have to have two or it's inadmissible. But Jesus is interesting in the way he deals with women throughout his ministry. And no place like the garden scenes and there are others where we see Jesus and angels interact with women does he erase that distinction of women being non-entities because the angels tell the women. The women go back and the apostles don't listen. Mary will encounter her Savior in a garden. The men will much later. And I think it's such a delicious touch of God's kindness to say women are just as important as men in God's economy. You're made in the image of God. You're not subservient. You're not a Middle Eastern entity that's chattel and property, and you stay out of the world. You're an image-bearer of God, and Christ was completely politically incorrect in his time. Women traveled with him. They supported his ministry, and here they're going to deliver a message to the disciples, the 11 apostles, who, of course, are going to ignore it. Now one detail I want to point out in verse 12 where Peter sees the linen wrappings alone. There are two theories on the way bodies were treated in antiquity in the first century by the Jews. Joseph of Arimathea and others have taken him off the cross and prepared him for burial. They would have washed him and wrapped him in cloth. Now the common shroud of Turin where you've seen the image probably looks like a sheet laid over a dead body or some believe it was wrapped around a body in this fashion. That's one view. The other view is more like a mummy. That's the view I think is more accurate biblically. They've brought over a hundred pounds of spices that really are pastes and tars and a sticky substance. And to prepare the body is to wash the body and then to take what we would call death wrappings and wrap the arm and fold those spices like a sticky paste, like a date paste through those wrappings. And the arms and legs be wrapped in a certain way and then the entire body and the head would be wrapped probably just from the brow up. And they might have laid a cloth over the face. But that's not the Shroud of Turin if you've seen it. Now the reason I point this out at some length, Merrill Tenney says, the wrappings were in position where the body had lain. The head cloth was where the head had been separated from the other cloth by a distance from the armpits to the neck the shape of the body was still apparent but the flesh and bone had disappeared and most artist renderings and i looked online this week for a good image to put on my facebook i couldn't find one but most of them have a loin cloth or jesus coming out with this white thing and he's coming out of the grave and you know it looks real cool it's not what the bible says the bible says there's, if you will, a little turban that's kind of fa- fallen over here, and a chrysalis or a cocoon like mummy wrapped thing full of spices and herbs that probably weighed close to 100 pounds plus the material that's sort of compressed a bit. And the icing on the cake is Peter's word, Luke's word of Peter. He marveled. And the word marvel can be taken two ways. It can be taken, what in the world's happened? I have no idea what's going on. Or, wow, this is incredible. But neither one of them lead Peter to the right conclusion. Peter goes home wondering what's happened. He doesn't know. He can't figure it out. The women and Peter went looking for what? A dead body. And they found no dead body, but they found these wrappings. Of course, the grave cloths, whether it was a shroud or whether it was a chrysalis type wrapping, still suggest there was a body there at one point. If it was a chrysalis, who in the world would have unwrapped it and tried to get the body out? You'd have taken the body and the wrapping. Even if it was a shroud, you wouldn't have left the shroud behind. You would have carried the body in some type of wrapping had it been stolen. You see, the body of Jesus in the tomb is incompatible with the resurrection and incompatible with what Jesus said would occur. To find the body of Jesus in a tomb would be to negate all that Jesus has said and done. It would make Jesus out to be a liar. The question, I think, of the empty tomb is just as prevalent today, as important as it was then. You look into that tomb, you see wrappings. What do you think? Do you believe he was resurrected from the dead or something else? That was the question the women had to ponder. It was the question the disciples will ponder. And it will not be till later till Christ shows up and produces himself to them and says, believe, put your hands here, your finger here, believe. Don't be unbelieving, believe. And even at his ascension, when he goes to heaven, the text says, some were doubting. These guys were not good salesmen. They were asking the wrong question at the wrong place. To say it another way, are you seeking answers among the dead? We're looking for satisfaction in a way it can never be accomplished. We're looking for love in a way it does not exist. Hollywood and television give us a picture of love that is a lie and yet we're all deceived by it and duped by it why are books like 50 shades of gray sold in the millions why is pornography an insatiable problem in america because we believe a lie that there's such a fantasy a love that exists and it's a fraud You cannot find satisfaction in a dead place. You cannot find real love in a dead place. You can't find power in a dead place. And when you accumulate power and wealth, which is all these things are good things. Satisfaction, love's a good thing. Power and wealth can be used in good ways. But if you think those things are going to make you fulfilled and happy, you will find them hollow and wanting. Because we're looking for the wrong answer to the wrong question among the dead. And our life is so horizontal, it's very difficult to get it vertical once in a while and think this earth is not my home. It is at best a clean bus station. I'm just passing through. I'd rather ride on a Prevost than a greyhound, but it's still the same. It's just a bus. And I don't want to live there all my life. It's not home. There was no need to visit the grave the women expected to find the dead body peter and john expected to find the dead body they found an empty tomb they're despairing they're doubting they're fearing they're hiding and it will not be until later when christ comes and helps them in a strange remarkable way their doubt and disbelief should help your and my faith These people knew him better than anyone. They're with him for three years. Peter, James, and John are his three closest friends on the planet. And they don't believe, they were lousy salesmen if they believe what he said they've been saying we know he's risen he's risen but it will take god's help for them and the person and work of the holy spirit a little later before they will begin to comprehend all that he said was true and these guys are transformed from confused discouraged hiding and holding up men to out preaching jesus christ whom you crucified has been risen from the dead so their faith is developed from doubt even at an empty tomb till later faith in Christ is who he says he is. And that should encourage you and me because they had questions too. And they asked their questions in the wrong place to begin with. They asked him in a graveyard and there was nothing there to answer their question. Three lessons from this passage. Number one, Jesus had to die. He had to die. The gospels emphasize it over and over again. Jesus learned obedience through suffering to the point of death jesus said i always do that which is pleasing to the father jesus said i only do what the father tells me to do as lloyd is fond of saying there is no plan b from eternity past there is no inception point when god said one day i have a plan i have an idea from eternity past it was always god that he would provide a way for sinful people because he loved and so Jesus must die. The angel says it. He must die. These things must happen. Jesus told you that. This will happen. Secondly, Scripture is fulfilled. We read so many times in the Bible according to the Scripture. In fact, the passage I read a moment ago, I said, pay note, what was written by the prophets. When we read that phrase, we, it, you know, the Bible is this sort of complicated, dusty, old, dry book that we kind of are supposed to like and love and don't really understand. And so we read it and we sort of gloss over it and miss so, so much of what's going on. But the idea that it says, according to the scripture, is evidence of an otherworldly kind. When you bring evidence in a court, maybe it's physical evidence, circumstantial evidence, forensic evidence, eyewitness testimony evidence. We have all kinds of evidence that are used in a case, in a course of law. So we piece this together, and if it makes it past, all the, the trial issues, and finally he's brought to trial. Here's the smoking gun, the videotape, the forensic evidence, the eyewitness accounts. We have all of it in line. It's still going to be judged either by a judge or a jury. And they're going to say, well, based on the evidence. Now, it's never as clear and simple as we'd like, right? When the Scripture says, according the Scripture, as the prophets has written, what the Bible's saying is God has said it. God saying something has more evidential weight than anything on the planet. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you believe a book, you believe a story that was told to you by someone else who read it to you or shared it with you or you said it on your own and God intruded your life, wrecked your life, and you came to trust in Christ in Christ alone by the word of God. This is the very Word of God, and it has to be fulfilled. And if it was fulfilled thousands of times in the Old Testament, over 300-plus prophecies of Christ in the Old Testament are, cul- are, fu- are culminated in the work of Christ, and the ones yet to be fulfilled, do you not have a pretty good track record to trust what's going to happen in the future if everything <laughs> he else he has said has been accomplished? So when it says according to the scripture, it should scream at us, God has said this. It's not going to change. It can't be stopped. It will not falter because God has said according to his word. Third and last, the resurrection is true. The resurrection is a fact. If the resurrection is not true, if it's not a fact, we are not just philosophers of another denominational religious affiliation. We're fools. Paul writes extensively about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to read just a couple of verses from this long chapter. Many times there he'll use, according to the Scriptures, according to the Scriptures, because that was evidence the Jew could not refute. God's Word said it. We have to look at it because God says this. 1 Corinthians fifteen thirteen. If there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we're found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, even Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. Verse 19, if we've hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If you look at the life of Christ in this life only and say he was good, he was a teacher, he was kind, he performed miracles, he ate with sinners, he was a socialist, he loved people, whatever you want to do, the gospel according to Jesus, the way the world interprets it, what does Paul say? He says, you're pitiful. If you and I look at Jesus is this social do-gooder who never took a position were most pitied, were fools. Resurrection, it, it all hangs on whether or not Christ was resurrected from the dead. The apostles were eyewitnesses. The stone was moved, the angels appeared, the tomb was empty, Jesus was gone. When we take groups to Israel, I'll leave tomorrow to lead probably my last group. We take groups over for many years now and point where I just can't do it much anymore. So I think it's the last one. And we take groups over there and we take them to the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, which is the traditional one you see on TV, the site of where Jesus was crucified and laid on the sepulcher of the stone and then buried. Or we go to what's called the garden tomb. And they're two very different experiences. And we take groups there and we explain the pros and cons of each setting and why they may or may not be the place where Jesus was crucified or he was buried. I hate going to them. You'll see internationals line up impeccably dressed Europeans you'll see Nigerians you'll see Asians Korean groups all sorts of groups from all over the world Japanese tours it's fascinating it's like a UN over there all these groups Coptic Christians charismatic Christians African-American church groups charismatic church groups white church groups all over there Catholics Baptists Methobacterians, they're all there and they line up to go see the sepulchre And I'll never forget this woman, Hispanic woman dressed to the nines, magnificently, beautiful woman, pulled out of her very expensive purse, a laced cloth, got on her knees and wiped that cloth on the sepulcher stone and pressed it against her face and wiped it and pressed it and wept like a child. Why do you seek answers in a graveyard? He's not here. He's alive. Your answers aren't found looking at tombstones. As interesting as it may be, there is no hope in that hole in the ground. And the icing on the cake, nowhere in the Bible after these events does anyone ever go back and visit the grave of Jesus? Because he's not there. Your hope is in a living Savior, not a dead one. And it is the very fact that he came back from the dead and proved his power over death. And he offers to any and all who put their trust in Christ and Christ alone for their salvation. Not with their religions and ismologies. And even a lot of churches say what he says at his word. That's where you can put your life and hang your life on it. He lived, he died, he was buried. He was buried to confirm his death. He comes back from the dead to prove his power over life. And he offers to any and all a free gift called salvation by putting your trust in Christ and Christ alone. Not what you do, what he's done. In your place, on your behalf, instead of you. That's resurrection. That's resurrection. He forgives you. He offers you a free gift called eternal life. It's the best transaction you'll ever hear in your life. You do nothing but trust him. You do nothing but believe him. You do nothing but embrace what he said. You accept the truth of what he said. He lived, he died, he was buried, and came back from the dead. That is biblical Christianity. That is the resurrection of Christ. That is the centerpiece on where our hope is pinned. Not on what men say, but what God did. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for the freedom we have right now in our country to assemble and talk about such things. For those of us that know Christ, may we live a living life, not a life looking for satisfaction in dead places. And for those here who've never come to trust in Christ, and Christ alone, that this would be that beginning day, that by trust, by faith, by putting their faith in you to do for them what they can never do for themselves, you offer them eternal life, forgiveness of sins, and you adopt them as your child. Thank you for who you are, for all you've done, and the truth of your story. In Christ's name, amen.